Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, we have one of our more substantive episodes today, if I, if I don't say so myself. This is an area where uh, elite media is swinging and missing in a way that's even possibly worse than other ways, minus war. I think on war, they're even worse than this, by the way. Yeah. But, um, they're, or they just ignore. They, for the most part, for the most right. part. To be fair, so like two weeks ago, we have Jonah Furman on. He's a labor reporter, phenomenal at his job. Like two weeks ago, he, he had this post where he laid out, here are all the strikes that are going on right now. And the list was really long. And then here are all the potential strikes. And that list was really long. And I remember looking at that going, I got to talk about this. I got to cover this because I, I had no idea. And I follow this stuff like a hawk. I mean, it's my job to follow this stuff. So uh, since then, now we're getting a little bit of coverage, particularly of the one strike, the John Deere strike mm -hmm. in, in mainstream media. But yeah, it's very few and far between. And there's very few labor reporters in the country. So anyway, I think talking to Jonah is actually a really important thing because this is the kind of stuff that should really be front and center and that people should be talking about, everybody should be educated on it because, you know, the more people are educated that you can fight back and you can get your uh, wages raised and you can get better benefits and you don't have to sit down and take it, the better off we'd be and the more people would actually get their rear in gear to, you know, organize and do those things. Well, it sets a powerful, powerful example of why it matters to be in a union. That's right. Way more yeah. than showing, you know, we show the charts and here's the differential in the wages and here's what it used to mean and all that stuff. But when you see people who are able to take this kind of action and go, nah, I don't, I don't like that contract and we're not going to take yeah. that contract. We're going to get something better. And they actually go out and they actually hopefully ultimately win. And I think that they will. Um, that is an incredibly persuasive message. That's right. So we're going to talk to labor reporter Jonah Furman about all the strikes going on across the country. We're going to focus a lot on the John Deere strike, which is 10,000 workers, which is that's industrial huge Midwest, number. iconic yeah. American brand, and again, all that stuff. being largely ignored by the media. So we're going to talk about that. Um, but before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about what's happened since the Chappelle standup came out, the fallout around that. Mm -hmm. um, so you watched the special. I watched the special. Correct. You know, we both gave our thoughts on it. I think Dave Chappelle uh, is one of the greatest comedians of all time, you know, and maybe I'm biased because the era I was born in and, you know, I grew up on Chappelle show and it was just, he's just amazing. Half baked is one of my favorite stupid movies that I'll watch like 87 times over. Um, and I love, you know, most of his standups I think, I think are great. I think one before this, I'm not sure if it was the, the one just before this or a few ago, but one of them I was like, meh. Uh, and on this one, you know, I, I think there were moments of it that were funny, but in my opinion, it was a little leaning too heavy on the preachy side. Yeah. As opposed to putting like the comedy first and and then, you know, whatever message second. Both of us felt, I think, that the criticism had gotten in his head. Right. And yeah. had kind of messed him up on the comedy front. <laughs> like, yeah. It he's was... really obsessed with the criticism. And, you know. yeah. And that comes through in the special. I mean, again, there are moments in it that are funny, but it was not like I wouldn't say hilariously. It's I definitely wouldn't say it's not even close. In fact, I'd say it's probably his worst. I, it's either his worst or second worst, in my opinion. But that's neither here nor there. It's a moot point. Um but there's been – so now there's fallout as a result of that. Uh, there are employees at Netflix who are saying, we're going to walk out. We're going to, like, walk out on the job. And some of those people are saying, look, we just, like, pull down the special. We don't want the special to be up. Um, and some of them are not saying that, to be fair. Uh, but they have released, like, a list of here are the things that, that we would like from Netflix. Um, now, to this point, Netflix has largely stood by 
uh, Dave Chappelle and said, you know, this is we're keeping the special up, basically. But didn't you tell me there's a little bit of movement on that front now? There was. Tell me what happened. So not really in terms of the mm -hmm. substance of they're still 100 percent, you know, planning on keeping it up. The Netflix CEO did apologize for sort of like the way that he handled mm -hmm. it. He felt like I think he said something like I should have led with humanity first. Right. And an acknowledgement that, you know, that people were truly hurt, offended, and insulted, whatever the language was there, by this, and I should have led with this. But it did not change where he ultimately came down that we're sticking by the special and it's going to yeah. stay up. So uh, I'm going to get to their, the, the letter that the employees wrote in a second. But first let me say, to the whatever percentage of the people it is who work at the company who want the special actually pulled, on that front let me just say, and everybody knows this is my opinion because I already did a separate segment on it, I filed out under the hell no category. Because, listen, even if I grant them all of their points that it's horribly bigoted or whatever, which I don't necessarily agree with, mm -hmm. I still would keep it up. Because the intent was not that, and that matters massively. Mm. It's the example I always use is that The Sopranos is widely viewed as one of the greatest shows of all time, if not the greatest show of all time. And there are parts of it that are horrifically racist. And, you know, it's to my knowledge, it's not like... The NAACP came out and said, you must pull this down now and nobody should be able to watch it. I just think that goes way too far. There are plenty of pieces of art where it is bigoted or racist or there's other problems with it or flat out genocidal. Like, this is what happens. And in the realm of art, the idea is generally that you get a pass as long as the intent is not something that's incredibly malicious. Like, obviously, if they do a special where a comedian goes out there and he's like, I'm in the KKK and the KKK is wonderful. Everybody or be like, eh. <laughs> is actively calling for some action to be taken. Right, yeah, direct against... threats of violence, Yeah, of I mean, there are yeah. obviously clear lines here. Right, so anyway, on that front, to put that aside, because I think that's the easiest part of the question here, and mm -hmm. honestly, even a lot of the people who walked out are not overreaching and arguing that because they kind of know that they don't have solid ground to stand on if they're saying just pull it down, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so what happened was they walked out, there was an actual protest where Netflix's own employees were protesting Netflix, perhaps joined by others as well. Yes, and mm -hmm. if I could, I just looked it up from Please. New York Times. They say dozens of Netflix employees, and I think they were joined. I think there were more people who joined okay. that don't work for the company. So here's what happened. Now, I, I wanted to play you guys this video, and, but as I was getting it so that they could queue it up in the control room for us, uh, there was just, it was copyrighted even on Twitter. So mm -hmm. they literally pulled the video down from a Twitter account that had posted the video. It was a minute and 20 seconds long or so. Interesting. And, and the video was of... of Somebody who is pro Dave Chappelle, and he was holding a sign that said something to the effect of like, I like Dave Chappelle, or Dave Chappelle is funny, or something like that. Uh, and he walked in with that sign, a pretty mild sign, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, it's, I, I would agree with that. It's just fact, that I, think, I like Dave, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And uh, what happened was, he walks in with a sign, and the some of the protesters grab the sign, break it, and almost like sort of force him out. You know, they, they try to drown him out with some loud... I don't know if it's an instrument or whatever, and they sort of try to push him back, and he keeps saying the same thing, which is like, I think comedy's funny, and I like Dave. <laughs> and, it's it, you know, they were acting like it was egregious. Now, listen, I, I have no idea what that guy's politics are, and maybe he's a guy who I'd disagree with on 80 or 90% of things. I don't know. Maybe he's a guy I'd agree with on 70 or 80 or 90% of things. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But, I mean, my general takeaway is, are the employees allowed to walk out and, and protest and ask for certain things? Of course they are. That's, you know, you're allowed to do that yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, 100%. Um, but if somebody's coming to counter-protest you and they're being perfectly peaceful, 
Well, that person also has free speech rights. So in the same way that you have the right to walk out and petition your company for whatever it might be, and I'll get to the details in a second, um, so does that dude. And it struck me as... Uh, it struck me as a real problem with that kind of mindset. You know what I mean? The mindset of some of the people want to pull it down, uh, and then other people, they, they see even the mildest of mild pushback saying, hey, I disagree, and I think Dave is funny. And it's like, break his sign and get him out of here. They want their free speech, but they don't want him to have his. Right. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. Yes. Like, you're very clearly trying to be consistent. And I remember you also stood up for the Netflix employee who was fired, and there's some question over why they were fired Oh, right, exactly. yeah, yeah. Well, in that segment, yeah. So it was a trans employee who basically did this tweet thread criticizing uh, Chappelle, and Netflix fired her and said it wasn't over the tweets. We're firing her because she tried to get into a director-level meeting or something that she wasn't cleared to go to. And well, my comment that... Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't... You I weren't invited to this meeting. You're fired. That's, I don't obnoxious. have all the specifics, but yeah. based on the facts that we have... Would I fire that woman? No, I wouldn't do it. Right. I wouldn't do it. I, I just, I, I think that's the wrong thing to do. And, but I also think it's the wrong thing to pull down the spell sh sh special. I think that's pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, but okay, let me get to what they're asking for, what the demands are of okay. the employees who walked out. So they say they want to create a new fund to specifically develop trans and non-binary talent. Uh, they say it should support both above the line and below the line talent. I'm not sure I know what those terms mean. Do you know what they mean? And not exactly. I don't know I if think it, means it means people who've already made it and people who are on the way up. Is that what it means? I, I okay. I'm making this up. I think it means like people who are prominent cast members versus maybe crew members. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Themes. Gotcha. That's my guess. But it could I'm be that. Yeah. Sure. Um, they said this fund should exist in addition to the existing creative equity fund, which maybe is something similar to that that already exists. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because Netflix likes to, you know, almost brag about ways in which we are Their diverse and we do this. And, and they do have they do have specials that are very pro-trans, too, like documentaries that are very pro-trans as do. well. Mm -hmm. um, they want to increase investment in trans and non-binary content on Netflix comparable to the total investment in, quote, transphobic content, including marketing and promotion. See, this one hit me, and I'm like, hold on. Because it seems to me like what they're saying is they think the Dave Chappelle special is transphobic. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying you need to have a fund with the same amount of money for trans uh, talent, effectively. Now, when I look at that, maybe I'm the bad guy. I don't know. You guys tell me. But I, I don't know how much Dave got paid for that special. But tens of millions at the very least. Yeah. Right? So they're saying just create a fund to just give tens of millions to random trans comedians is that the idea um well they don't say specifically comedians right just content in general just content in general keep going what's the rest of the list okay it's uh invest in multiple trans creators to make both scripted and unscripted programs across genres revise internal processes on commissioning and releasing potential harmful sensitive content including but not limited to involving parties who are a part of the subject community and can speak to potential harm or consulting with third-party experts Whoa. and vendors. That's like an effort to make nothing funny ever again. Sorry. It, no, I mean, <laughs> it, they're, you know, they want you to get like pre-approval from people who might be offended. Now, listen, I have to say, uh, you, you know, I, I come from an Italian family. Yeah. My mom just started watching The Sopranos not that long ago, actually, because yeah. she wants to watch the new one. She's very, she's very offended. One of the comments she made, I'm not kidding about this, one of the comments she made to me is the way they portray Italians, I don't really like. So if she was in charge... <laughs> Of determining whether or not The Sopranos gets on Netflix, Whole thing gets she asked. might vote no because she's like, it's making my people look bad. 
<laughs> and I got, I'm sorry, I got to say it, but I look at that and I go, hey, mom, www.shuddy.com, not interested in that. It's a great show. And so I don't want to be an asshole, but I kind of have to say the same thing to this community. If they're saying, I, you know, I don't, it, that is not okay with my personal taste, so I want to get rid of it. Okay, I have a little bit of a counterintuitive take on the list, which is I actually think the list is asking too little. And what I mean by that is these are exactly the kind of box-checking diversity things that companies do all the time to avoid having to make any real changes that are actually going to substantively change like the reality for um, oppressed communities. I mean, to have a, a one person on the board to have some fund, to throw $10 million at some creative pipeline or whatever. All this stuff is easy for them. It's box checking. And so in a sense, like, here's my broader point, is I think that the idea that you would invest your precious time and resources in protesting Dave Chappelle um, instead of the many other like trans rights that you could be focused on that would have a systemic change across the country. That's hard for me to understand. It's very surface level. Um, it's very sort of just like focused on the, um, you know, the box checking sort of like content free identity level stuff versus the fact that, yeah, there's a massive problem with trans suicide. Massive, massive problem with, you know, trans people are uh, disproportionately low on the economic scale. Like there are huge systemic problems here. And it seems to me like your focus is on the most surface level stuff that if Netflix checks all of these boxes, it's not going to actually change anything. So let me give you more. It's still not done. Recruit trans people, especially BIPOC. What's that stand for? Black indigenous, black people, indigenous of people of color. So recruit trans people, especially black indigenous people of color for leadership roles in the company and promote an inclusive environment for them. Allow employees to remove themselves from previous company promotional content like allyship and diversity videos. In other words, they're saying that was pedantic and condescending to mm -hmm. like force us in those videos or whatever. So allow them to take themselves out of it. Eliminate references or imagery of transphobic titles or talent inside of the workplace, including but not limited to murals, posters, room names, swag, uh, and then they have a whole harm reduction section where they say acknowledge the harm uh, and Netflix's responsibility for this harm from transphobic content and in particular harm to the black trans community. Add a disclaimer before transphobic titles that specifically flag transphobic language, misogyny, homophobia, hate speech, etc. as required. Boost promotion for disclosure and other trans affirming titles in the platform. Suggest trans affirming content alongside and after content flagged as anti-trans. So I guess you'd tag on at the end of, you know, Dave Chappelle special, like counter special or something. I don't know. That's the gist so of that. So it's censorship plus box checking performative well, again, identity stuff. It, to be fair, they're not saying explicitly take down the piece. In fact, like I said, they're understanding they're on shaky ground on that front. So they sort of backed away from that. And now they're just saying, like, do like a, a fairness doctrine type thing where you have a response to the and also effectively trigger warnings if for content that's supposed to be arguably bigoted, right? That's what they're saying. But listen, to your point, I want to get to my overall breakdown on this too. Yeah. Actually, first, let me say this. I think one of the things that happens is that historically, when a group really is, is not equal in any serious sense and they're sort of looked down upon and uh, they've had it rough for a long time, I think what happens is this backlash effect. And there's like an overcompensation for the fact that for the longest time, 
they were really looked down upon. And in many ways, there's still a lot of issues there. And, you know, listen, I'm a colossal fan of Malcolm X. I think he's arguably the greatest speaker of all time. But you go back and watch pre-Mecca Malcolm X speeches, there are parts of it that are, first of all, straight up incredibly anti-Semitic, like openly Mm -hmm. anti-Semitic. And, you know, he was a follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad from the Nation of Islam. They literally believed, like, white people were devils. And they were black nationalist and black separatist. I mean, is like the definition of racist in a sense. Now, you know who later on realized that? Malcolm X, after he went to Mecca and he sort of became more of like a Martin Luther King type figure. But anyway, point is, the black community was so put down for so long that there was this backlash of like, burn the whole thing down. Mm-hmm. And I think you're sort of seeing that with the trans community where, you know, they people finally have a voice. You've democratized the public square in a sense, like John Stewart said. So now they're like, well, here are all, all, all of our demands, and this is what we want. But to your point, the thing that I can't get over is, yeah, like there are real problems. One of the biggest problems is uh, trans people are not a protected class. And so what that means is in over 20 states in the country, you can get fired if you're trans, and the boss can literally say, I'm firing you because you're trans. Uh, I'm uncomfortable with it. I think it's weird. I either don't want to hire you, I'm going to fire you because you're trans. Get out of my store. You're a weirdo. I don't like the way you look. That's still legal in this country. That's a real civil rights fight. So if you take all of this uh, energy and you channel it towards, uh, Biden could probably fix that with an executive order because Congress has the power of the purse. So it has to go through there if there's money being spent on it. There's no money spent on this if it's an anti-discrimination clause. So why are you not protesting Biden to fix that scenario? For the life of me, I don't understand. Because ultimately what this comes down to is like you said, let's just get the standard you know, box checking and give us rebuttal time to stuff we don't like, give us trigger warnings. And ultimately, the reaction to this is everybody's going to be like, what's wrong with you guys? Like, this is crazy. Well, that's, I think your point is it's not a politically smart strategy in terms of... I also just don't agree with it on the substance, too. Yeah. I don't want trigger warnings for anything, really. And... I don't want uh, some sort of fairness doctrine where you balance this opinion with that opinion when it comes to comedy specials or movies or whatever. Right. I mean, another example here is, um, you know, healthcare for trans people. Huge issue, disproportionate number of people without healthcare at all, not able to get the medical care that they need and deserve. Like, that's another gigantic issue where you could join with a huge coalition and fight for universal health care for all to include um, full care for trans people. Right, yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, that would be another, like, systemic change where you have an ethos there of solidarity rather than I want my, you know, my carve-out for my group and every other group can come out, come to the table and say, oh, well, I want my carve-out yeah. for this group and I want my carve-out for that group. and. Like, look, I think diversity is important. I don't want to say that it doesn't matter to have people with different identities and backgrounds at the table. But we also know from past experience the way that this is used. And that's why I say it's too comfortable for corporate America, because we see that the way it's been used with other identities. So for one example, came across my radar, so to speak, today that Reverend Sharpton is fighting against the carried interest loophole. Explain everybody what that is. So it's you know. a it's a giveaway to Wall Street, basically a tax giveaway to Wall Street. And the reason he's doing it is because he says it would hurt black business owners trying to build wealth. Okay, so 
this is the type of way that you can have these box checking exercises. You can have Kamala Harris as vice president, but it doesn't actually change any of the systems when you're focused on just, you know, let's have a fun. I mean, Goldman Sachs, I think, has some like we're going to invest in a bunch, bunch of black business owners. Jamie Dimon can kneel before a bank vault and say Black Lives Matter. But if you're not focused on these more sort of um, universal structural fights that are actually uncomfortable for big companies like Netflix, most of these things, some of these things fall in the category of of attempts at, at censorship, which I just, you know, substantively oppose and think would be a problem for Netflix in terms of neutering their content and making it uninteresting. But in terms of the fund and let's invest in this person, let's get that person on the board, et cetera, et cetera, I think Netflix could do those things, no problem, check the box, and it wouldn't change a goddamn thing. Yeah, and I guess um, one of the other things that gets under my skin about all this is that so you have a, a stand-up special, which some see as as very controversial, and that sparks more direct action than we just learned they're taking tuition-free community college out of the reconciliation package. Um, the child tax credit originally was for 10 years, then they moved it down to five years. Now they're uh, moving it down to a year. Um, as you pointed out, they have the lower prescription drug prices, which is supported by 80% plus of the American people. They're pulling that out of the reconciliation package. And it's all on record how uh, blatantly corrupt a lot of the actors are here. Kirsten Cinema taking $920,000 from Big Pharma and then turning around and doing their bidding when she previously ran on lowering prescription drug prices. And now she's saying, take out the provision that would lower prescription drug prices. It strikes me as incredibly disheartening that that doesn't spark a sort of direct action, everybody fired up, bodies in the street type thing. Yeah. But Dave Chappelle tells a couple, you know, controversial jokes, and it gets way more press, way more discussion, way more bodies out there, and, you know, a, a list of demands that everybody's talking about. You know what I mean? Although, in fairness... It certainly got a lot of media attention. There's the, no doubt about it. The Chappelle special mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. you know upset around it. The number of employees who are actually participating in these actions is a big question mark. Well, in the video, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to show it, and you corrected me and said there were people from the outside who came and joined it. Yes. But there was a decent number of people there. I don't know how many it was, but there was a decent number there. Yeah, so what the, the time says, and I looked at other reports as well to see how many employees, mm -hmm. and dozens. Out of Netflix employees, 9,000 people. Oh, they have 9,000 employees? That's Na a lot of 9, employees. 9,000 full-time employees. Now, that's globally. So, look. And I think some were planning on participating in some kind of virtual, mm -hmm. virtual walkout. So, we don't know. So, we also don't know how widespread the sentiment actually is within Netflix and the Netflix workers, we should also say. Even in the country, too. I'd be curious. I would be curious yeah, as well. Mm -hmm. Um because ultimately, like, to get a, a hundred people or a couple hundred people in California, what is, was in L.A., is that right? I don't um, know. Let's see. Uh, was, is, yeah, in L.A., is, you know, it's not massive. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there were, this is the part that I find really disheartening, even when you have a mass protest movement that has a lot of justification behind it as the Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter protest movement did largest mobilization in history and it didn't result in a single change at the federal government level. That is what I guess I find more depressing than the fact that um, there's, you know, a, 
some action around the Dave Chappelle special. If Look, if you had an issue with it and you want to see changes you want to take to the street, fine, do it. But don't try to shut down the rights of other people who have a dissenting view to also voice yeah, their opinion. Yeah, and also, you know, Netflix, I think they've, I mean, they've had scandals like this before, and their reaction was to produce more pro-trans content yeah. and, you know, hire a, a more diverse array of people. Mm -hmm. So, like, they have been responsive in that respect. I guess the only area where seemingly they have drawn the red line, and on this I completely agree with them and I applaud them, is that they're like, we're not taking it down. Now, to be fair, they're not doing it for any sort of principled reason. They're doing it because they're like, we make money off this. You know, this is something that's very popular for us. I think they literally mentioned in one of their statements, like, he's the number one, I don't know if it was number one comedy special or the number one thing on Netflix or whatever it was. Yeah. But their reasoning was like, well, you know, this is why we're not taking it down. But, you know, I wouldn't agree with the characterization from others that, like, well, it's viciously transphobic, and so you're literally harming people by keeping it up. I think that's a colossal stretch because clearly Dave's intent is not homophobic You could or, or uh, transphobic. You can disagree with some of the stuff he says substantively, but if, you know, does he view himself as uh, transphobic and malicious uh, against that community? No, that is crystal clear to me. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I also don't want to say that culture and Hollywood don't matter, right? I don't want to say that, like, the tone that's set in culture and Hollywood is totally irrelevant and you shouldn't worry about it whatsoever, but it's it seems ridiculous when people say words are literally violence, when there is literal violence that is happening yeah. and it receives much less of a response than and, and just the special. The final point I'll make on this is to the provision that basically says, like, we want to we want Netflix to spend as much money on you know, pro-trans content as they spend on transphobia. Mm. Again, they think the Chappelle very, show yeah. is transphobic. It's very um, framing. You can't say, if you make that point, then you actually cannot say that you're in favor of equality. Because the reason why Dave Chappelle got his payday of however many tens of millions it was, right, is because he worked his way up from, like, the 1990s until today and was a stand-up comedian the whole time paid his dues, and ended up making a lot of money. And to say, well, just take the same amount of money, I don't know what it is, let's, argue, let's just say 30 million, right? Take that amount of money and give it to various trans creators. What you're saying is, I want to treat them in a special way, not just an equal way. Like, if there's a trans comedian who works their way up and then they get that contract in, in, in the market, then that would be wonderful, that'd be great, and we'd all support that. But you can't just say just pay some the trans, um, you know, comedian or whatever, the amount that Dave Chappelle, the number one comedian in the world, made for his special. Because then you're not saying you want equal treatment, you're saying I want special treatment, I want to jump the line and just get what the number one has simply by nature of the fact that I'm trans. Well, left out of this conversation, too, is the fact that Dave Chappelle is black. So he also is a member of an oppressed group. So how does that factor in? Does he get, you know, does Netflix get some points in that bucket because he, you know, meets a different identity that also is oppressed. Do they get credit for that? Yeah. I mean, well, that's the, and this was one of the things in the Chappelle special is you did get the sense he was sort of doing the oppression Olympics thing where he's like, he's yeah. talking about the trans community, but then he kept re referencing the like, fact that we've he's got black. it worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And so it, that's one of the reasons why I thought the, it, was, it was a little too preachy of a special is that it was all very, you know, he felt he sounded very aggrieved and like he was playing the victim. And it's like, dog, you're Dave Chappelle. Like, <laughs> you're 
I've relaxed. Like, I'm good. Yeah, you're worth <laughs> a gazillion dollars, and you do whatever you want, which is like live on a farm randomly in Ohio. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I don't want to hear that part of it. Just right. don't read your social media feed, and you'll be okay, dog. Trust well, me. Class did not enter much into the analysis from Mr. Chappelle. Right, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, we've uh, sort of gone on for far too long here, but that's the breakdown. It's, well, it's interesting, and it's multifaceted, and it's, you know, It is interesting. It is multifaceted. I'm not sure I even hit all the points that I wanted to make, but bottom line is... Chappelle's stand-up was controversial. Some people wanted to pull down. They said no. Then you got to walk out among a bunch of employees who are demanding certain things. In my opinion, the list of things that they're demanding is not reasonable. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens from here. Yeah. Um, if I was Netflix, I'd do a bunch of, like, you know, box checking. Be like, gave you what you wanted, ultimately. I think that, but the thing is, they could say they already did that. Mm. And I don't know if they will, because then that sounds like you're being aggressive in your tone you're or whatever. Being condescending. Yeah, but they could be like, listen, we have a lot of pro-trans content, and they, and they do. That's true. Do. And yeah. we've hired, they have trans employees, and they've hired a, a diverse array of people. So effectively, they can make the argument like, what more do you want? And then some people, I don't know how small the number is at this point, but it's a shrinking number. Some would say, well, we actually do want you to pull the special, in which case. If, if you're Netflix, then you would be correct to be like, no, no, <laughs> not doing that and stop asking. Yep, indeed. Um, all right. One other thing we wanted to get to, which is interesting, is Trump has announced the launch of his new latest social media platform. But this one seems a lot more sort of like developed than the first social media platform from Trump was literally just like a blog on a website, which he ultimately pulled down because nobody was paying attention to it. And it was sort of pathetic. This one he partnered with an existing publicly traded company. Hmm. It's called Truth. Um, Trump Media and Technology Group is the name of his company. He's going to be the chair of this thing. And, of course, he frames it as, like, anti-censorship and pro-free speech. And here's how we're going to fight back against big data. But and you showed me this. One of the rules is you're not allowed to criticize him or the platform. Well, the rule is technically you're not allowed to criticize the platform. Well, but he's going to interpret that as... Hold on. Let me read. Because it ahead. says us or the platform. Us or the platform? Yeah. So it seems to me like, I mean, that could certainly be taken as you can't criticize Trump because yeah, that's... he's... The that's chair. The Mike Lindell. You know, yeah. It says, creating a spe free speech platform, no pornography, right. no adultery, no taking the Lord's name in vain. You have to agree with me on everything or else you get kicked off. Right. We believe in but free speech. But total free speech. It says you can't disparage, tarnish, or otherwise harm, in our opinion, us and or the site. <laughs> I mean, on Twitter, obviously you can criticize Twitter. You can call out Jack. You can do anything in that regard. There are other areas where yeah, you can shit on Twitter all day and people oh, be like, yeah. So in this regard, they're much less pro-free speech than Twitter ultimately is. But, I mean, it's interesting. What do you think of the move? And do you think that you can read anything into it in terms of um, his political plans? Mm, no, I don't think you could read anything into it in terms of his political plans. But my, honestly, my gut instinct, my thought is I think it's going to crash and burn. But I also think it's just a get money scheme. Right. Because, you know, uh, J.D. Durkin tweeted this. The five-day chart of whatever the company is that they uh, they joined up with to do this is the number one traded stock right now in the country. And it, it just, I mean, it skyrocketed. Whoa. So I think that, you know, I think there's that was the point of it. The point of it was get in low, pump it up like it's this thing. 
let it take off, run out the back door with all the money, let it crash and burn, and it is what it is. Because remember, like you said, he already did, oh, I'm creating my own social media. It wasn't a social media app. It was a page on your own website. Like a blog. Right, it was a blog, which you pulled down like two months later because nobody cared. And so that's what Trump does, and he's done this his whole career. He'll have this idea, oh, it's a big thing, it's this new thing, it's amazing, it's going to be incredible. And then when it crashes and burns, he just moves on to the next thing. He doesn't even mention the previous things. But there was Trump vodka, there was Trump steaks, there was, you know, um, he got caught doing literal pyramid schemes. You're the one who told me this. And also Trump University... He was found guilty of fraud. He had to pay out millions of dollars because he defrauded people with that. You can't just create something and call it a university. That's not how it works. Yeah. You need to be accredited. There are rules and stuff that apply to it. I think, didn't they settle out of court? What's that? I don't know if he was technically found guilty. I think he settled No, I think you're right. They settled out of court. But he paid millions and millions yeah. of dollars. You don't do that. So I don't think I agree that it's going to crash and burn because I do think he has enough people in his, you know, fan base to make something like this profitable. Well, there are and, plenty of marks, for sure. Exactly. There are plenty of marks out there. And it's not like it costs that much money to run a social media platform. It's not like you're, like, building something and okay. it requires humans and inputs, et cetera. So let me define crash and burn. Okay. It will never be one-tenth what Twitter is, Agreed. what Facebook is. And then do you? here's the other thing that's interesting to me is, like, part of why Twitter was so important to him in terms of setting the agenda is that's where all of official D.C. is, like, elites disproportionately. Where the world is in many ways. Well, elites disproportionately, though, are on Twitter over, like, Facebook was really important for Trump for his election, um, but it it wasn't important in terms of setting elite conversation. Twitter Mm -hmm. is important in terms of setting elite conversation. Do you think that this will be remotely effective in the same way? Oh, of course not. No. No. The same thing's going to happen as happened with his shitty blog. People, like, the only time I heard of stuff he was saying was if somebody happened to, like, screenshot it and then put it on Twitter. And it only happened with one of every 12 posts or something, you know? So it's, it'll be the same with this. If he says something particularly incendiary or stupid, then it'll get to whatever, the news or to Twitter. But most of the time, he'll be shouting into the ether. And most of the time, you know what might happen with it? And it would be hilarious if this happened. You know the company Gab, right? Yeah. So Gab was like, we're the free speech alternative to these terrible social media authoritarian sites. And then what happened was, like, only far right-wingers went there, and then eventually it degraded to just Nazism. <laughs> and that's not—I'm not exaggerating. Really? They just—in fact, I saw it the other day. The Gab account was tweeting, like, outright calling for, like, Christian nationalism or white nationalism. There was, there was a tweet that went sort of viral because that's what happens when— if you only brand yourself, I'm free speech, I'm free speech, I'm free speech, I'm free speech, I'll never crack down under any circumstance. Well, then what happens? The people who have the most odious things to say usually rush to you. They're going to run there. You know what I mean? That's what happens. Now, that's not me saying I don't agree with free speech. Everybody knows I'm one of the biggest free speech bros there is on the left. But that is just empirically what ended up happening with Gab. And that's what's going to happen with a lot of these outlets that try to, you know, put that cloak on themselves. So it's going to be MAGA central, and then it'll probably get smaller, and then it will degrade into that. The only um, so I actually agree with your analysis, but to play devil's advocate here, uh, the cable news networks are hard up for content. Their ratings have crashed. All the news sites like their views counts, view counts are way down. The media industry, the political media industry is struggling. Don't you think it's possible they cover what he says there just in desperation because they need content? Um, I think they're going to cover it as much as they cover him now. You know, like every now, one of every four Trump statements, there'll be an article about, and then that article becomes 15 articles in all the major outlets, like the Colin Powell statement. But, you know, for most of his his statements, just 
don't go anywhere because he's talking to himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, if the media was smart, which they're not, they would keep it like that and not cover him more. But as the election gets closer and as he starts maybe teasing that he's going to run again, yeah. then they won't be able to help themselves and then they'll probably cover him more. And then it'll be the self-fulfilling prophecy just like 2015 and 2016 where they don't stop talking about him and they end up inadvertently boosting him. You know what I mean? But for for the near future, it'll be exactly like it was with his shitty blog. It'll be exactly like it is with his presidential statements. <laughs> it'll just be like one of every four, and they just wait for him to say the most Something obnoxious thing. Something as obnoxious as possible. That right. They can't and then they're like, oh, to cover. Jake Tapper will wag his finger. How can you say that about Colin Yeah. Yeah. That's what will happen. <laughs> and his approval rating will take up another point. That's right. That's exactly what will happen. All right, guys. Really important and really exciting guest who is next. Jonah Furman is a reporter for Labor Notes. Um, you can subscribe to Labor Notes. I do. They do great stuff. Um, he also has his own Substack that literally goes week by week and just lists, you know, who's on strike, who's authorized to strike, who's got a contract they need to ratify, what was that ratification vote, who's looking at joining a union, who decertified a union, all of that stuff. Like if you want to get a full rundown of what's happening in the labor movement every single week, his Substack, uh, it's called Who Gets the Bird, is a vital resource for all of that. He's done a great job in particular on the John Deere strike. Here is Jonah Furman. Jonah, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So um, we've been following a, a lot of your work. You've been doing an incredible job tracking not just the John Deere strike, but all kinds of labor actions everywhere across the country. But I wanted to start with John Deere. Just give us an update, um, the very latest, what's going on there. I, I saw that there was an injunction against picketing that was issued. Talk to us about that and what the very latest is. Yeah, sure. So, you know, now we're Thursday. The strike has been going for a little over a week. Um it's a 24-7 picket line, so you have something like 14 facilities in the main Iowa and Illinois area, um, and they're still going strong. Um, they have picket duty for every hour of the day. There's a ton of community support. We saw some mass pickets, um, you know, a show of force. We saw a 1,000 people come out to one of the plants a couple days back. And then yesterday at uh, the Davenport, Iowa works, Davenport works, the deer factory there, a judge issued an injunction that basically says the picketers are obstructing people coming into and out of the plant and all these other, you know, these sort of bogus things saying like they're trespassing. Well, the whole lot is deer property. So when they say trespassing, they mean you're standing on deer property. The injunction basically limits the number of number of picketers to four, um, which is wild. I mean, these locals have hundreds, some, some of the locals have thousands of members who are, you know, trying to get out there and exercise their First Amendment rights. And uh, the judge says you can be arrested if there's more than four people. You can be arrested if there's a chair out there. You can be arrested if there's wow. what they call a burn barrel, which is just a way people keep warm and keep light in the dark hours. There's no street lights on these roads by these factories. So it's clearly a vindictive move by this judge and by John Deere. It's a temporary injunction, basically. My understanding is basically the union has a chance to challenge it. Um, but also community members have stepped up and there's a rally plan today saying, OK, we're not union members. We're not subject to the injunction. We're going to show up uh, and protest if they can't pick it. Um, so we'll see how that goes this afternoon. There's been a lot of support for that in uh, Davenport, Iowa. The worry is basically there's going to be copycat injunctions across the state. There's a rumor that this afternoon in the Des Moines plant, there's going to be a, 
a judge who puts out an injunction. Um, but we'll see what actually happens. Jonah, how is that constitutional? Because if that precedent holds, then the idea is can't any company say to any striking workers, uh, you know, I got an injunction against you doing this? Yeah, I mean, there's a very long history of this stuff. You know, it's it's one of the best examples of how labor is not subject to the Constitution. You're not subject to the Constitution at work in a lot of ways and right. on strike yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, so technically, this you know, the law is complicated on this issue. They say if you're committing any violations, you lose your rights to picket. But violations, in in the case of this injunction, it says, you know, they used a bullhorn, which members say they didn't even use. But like, what is wrong with using a megaphone saying, you know, we're on strike, stay out? Uh, you know, this is like, clearly, we would think of this as free speech rights. But because it's a labor dispute, the court is, I mean, it's quite clear they're siding with the corporation um, on this issue. Yeah. And uh, just a note on timing, we're recording this on uh, Thursday afternoon. So when you're saying this afternoon, we're talking about right. Thursday. This will release on, on Friday and then on Saturday for those who aren't paying subscribers. Um, Jonah, just let's back up for a second. And for people who haven't been following this too closely, what are the main grievances that these workers have? And what was the pathway? Because it was sort of extraordinary. They voted down right. overwhelmingly a right. contract that had been negotiated by union leadership. So what was the path to them getting to this place? Sure. So, you know, the main issues of the strike, there's there's in any good strike, there's more than one. But the, the big, there's sort of one big moral issue in this strike, which is the two-tier system at John Deere. This is what you hear people talk about as sort of a decades-long fight. When we talk about two-tier contracts, we're talking about basically a contract that says everyone who's in here now gets some sort of rights, but anyone who's hired after a certain date is going to be like a second-class kind of worker. They're doing the same work, but their wages are lower, their health benefits are worse. In the case of Deere, uh, in 1997, they agreed to this contract. Uh, the union agreed to a contract that says anyone hired after 1997 has a much smaller pension, doesn't have health care after retirement, much lower wages, worse benefits. Um, so what happened in this contract for years, members have said, we want to go back to pre-97. We know the company can afford it. The company has become more profitable, even you know, putting in for inflation and all that. Um, but they haven't been able to attain what they had pre-1997. So that's kind of like the big framework. Then in this contract, the company and the union came back with a deal that said, not only are we not going to get rid of this division of lower paid workers who are hired after 1997, we're going to create a new one where anyone hired after this contract, after November 1st, 2021, will not have a pension at all. They'll just have a mm -hmm. 401k. So they were going to create this third tier. And then on the cherry on top of all this is that the wage offer that Deere brought, even if you're not someone who really cares about the tier system at Deere, the wage offer they brought was just an insult. It was, you know, people talk about it as a $1 an hour raise. If you look at it, it was subinflation. It was basically 2% a year for a company that is making its record profits in its own history and $5.7 billion just this year alone, which is its best year ever. So those factors combined into this serious uh, uproar among the membership that was fed by um, a process, you know, that essentially the union brings an agreement back to the membership, right? And if they don't have an agreement by the the strike deadline, the expiration date of the contract, in most unions, you go on strike. You have no contract, no work. That's what people say in sort of traditional blue-collar unions. So the strike deadline passed. There wasn't an agreement, and the strike was delayed. 
this was, you know, two weeks ago, and um, it really, really pissed off a lot of members. Then they brought this agreement 10 days later uh, after there was an extension in place, and members saw what was in it and said, we can't accept this. And they voted it down 90% over the recommendation of their union. So, you know, the union brings this saying, we got to deal with the company. You know, essentially, we, we think it's good enough to present to the membership for a vote. And the idea of 90% of members organically voting down a proposed deal shows a real disconnect between whoever was in the negotiations and yeah. the members who work on the floor. I mean, that was another question I had is like, why in the world would they have thought that this contract would be sufficient when clearly, like you said, I mean, to have it rejected, 90 percent of members rejecting it over the recommendation of the union is quite extraordinary. How did the why was there such a disconnect between what was negotiated and what, you know, leadership was recommending and where the rank and file was? It's a great question. I mean, so one thing I want to say is that this is uh, there was 11 local unions involved in this and local these local presidents are not like out of touch you know whatever bureaucrats these are guys who worked the job within the past five years right. often people take a term as local president they leave the factory for a little while come back so they're in touch with the members so on that level it really is a mystery why this contract was so out of sync with what they knew the members would accept another thing you know, playing in here is that expectations have risen in the pandemic. You can see these shirts that the locals printed say, deemed essential in 2020, prove it in 2021. Mm, I've talked to a lot of members that. who say in 2015, the last contract, this could have passed. You know, it's not good, but it could have passed. Um, now it can't. And the third thing I'll say is that there is a huge problem in the national UAW where there's been for several years, there's been a, a corruption scandal that has involved paying off top officials with company money. And for decades, it's been concessionary contracts, which is what people in the union movement call contracts that basically give away rights you already have. So this is like mm -hmm. the 1997 two tier, but it's happening all across the UAW on a national level. So these local presidents might be in touch with the membership, but the national union clearly has some issue around holding these uh, people negotiating these contracts accountable. And part of that is that they don't elect top officers in the union. You elect your local president, but there's a very convoluted system where basically the same people keep getting reelected on the national level. So they can negotiate a terrible contract that members vote down overwhelmingly and they don't face any consequences for it. So a lot of members really want to switch to a direct election system to address this national problem in the UAW, even if the local level is, you know, people who are in touch with the members and generally well liked by, at least in the Deere case, by their uh, local memberships. How much did John Deere make in profit in 2020? It's well, their fiscal year will end at the end of this month, and it's looking like it's going to be five point seven to five point nine billion dollars in profit. Wow. Um, now, I also read that John Deere management has sort of been fudging the numbers when they talk about how much their workers make. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think I learned that from your Twitter feed. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's there's a million ways to to play with numbers in wages and you know what people earn on the job. So one of the things that people have been saying is these workers make sixty thousand to seventy thousand dollars a year. Now one worker saw that in the local news and reached out and was like, showed me her her annual pay stub essentially, and it was in the thirty nine thousand range. And you know they've worked there for over a decade. Um, so it's just not true that they're making that kind of money. The ways they fudge the numbers are 
essentially, first of all, you look at the top pay scale, which is only a tiny minority of you know skilled electricians, whereas most mm-hmm. of the people are on the bottom of the pay scale making you know nineteen to twenty one dollars an hour. Second, they have this program called KIP, which you know has mixed uh, mixed feelings about it in the union, but it's essentially one of these programs that's about work quotas, and you get paid out as you hit your work quota, but your work quota goes up 4% every year, 2% mm-hmm. every six months, where your pay doesn't go up. So you're on this treadmill where the production quota goes up and up and up, and these plans eventually fail, as they say. So when the company calculates what you're supposed to earn, they say, if you're in a successful plan making 120% of quota, which very few people are, then you would be making $60,000. Meanwhile, everyone's plan is failing. There's layoffs due to the supply chain. There's layoffs due to COVID. There's seasonal layoffs at John Deere. So what you actually end up with in your pocket doesn't match what you would have had if you had a successful plan, where you got all the bonuses, all the payouts, and you worked all the time that they say you know, you're, you're allotted. So that's, that's kind of where the, the fuzziness comes out. And you know, the, the media tends to take Deere's word for here's what we pay our employees. Whereas mm-hmm. if you just talk to workers, they say, I don't have that money. That, yeah, you know, you they can laugh. <laughs> the money is not in my bank account. So I don't know what you want to say about me being paid $60,000. I don't have $60,000. <laughs> yeah. Um, what has the, uh, what has the, what have some of the tactics of the company been to break the strike? Yeah, the big one is, you know, the whole the whole idea of a strike, if people don't understand this, it's not just like a protest where you're just trying to show support, get public sympathy. That's part of it. But it's also about production. It's about what the company can put out the door, how much money they can keep flowing through the company. So in the case of John Deere, you're making huge tractors, you know, skilled labor, uh, really difficult stuff. And the company's goal is we can keep the company running without these 10,000 workers. It's pretty laughable on its face, but they'll go to great lengths to at least show shareholders and show customers we're trying to keep things going. So some things they do is reassign salaried employees, which is what they call the non-union, you know, either clerical, managerial, or like engineers. They're not all, you know, not all of them have never held a wrench, but some some have. Um, and they reassign them to mostly to the warehouse just to keep products moving out. Um, and talking to some of the, you know, a lot of these salaried workers have reached out saying, we totally support the strikers. You know, my dad was in the union uh, or, you know, John Deere cut hundreds of jobs last year on the salary side. It's not like most of these people, most of these people are not C-suite executives. They're, you know, they're working a salary job at a huge corporation. And now they're forced to work 12 hours days, six days a week. Um, they had to go buy steel-toed boots. They're doing work they don't know how to do. It's, some of it is unsafe. Um, so the question is, can John Deere keep production up while um, you know uh, not having any of its workers? And the last thing I'll say about it is, this is why the injunction stuff is so important because the picket line legally, you know, they can't stop people from coming into the facility, but they it's it's about persuading people. So you have a trucker come, a union trucker come with their load of of materials to drop off to the company to, you know, produce the next uh, next generation of tractor. And if the picket can be there and slow down traffic and say, hey, please don't cross this picket line, you really can have an effect on production. If there's no picket line, the company can just keep operating as it wants. It doesn't have the labor it needs, but it also doesn't have to, you know, there's no pushback um, in terms of getting materials in and out of the door, which is what the picket line is all about. 
So, uh, you know, I saw that there were scabs being bust in and masks to sort of hide their identities, I guess. And there's also been, since you have people who normally work desk jobs now, you know, doing hard labor, there's been a bunch of accidents, right? Yeah. The first day there was, you know, someone drove a tractor into a pole and instantly, you know, the salaried workers sent it to me and said, this is, you know, unsafe. What, what do you expect? Yeah. Right. I mean, you changed yeah. my salary from IT to tractor driver, you know, and it's not to knock on these salaried people. It's just I, I couldn't drive a tractor tomorrow and not make any mistakes, you know, and certainly not on the level of 10,000 workers uh, at 14 facilities, you know, doing labor that I'm not trained for. So, there's that. There's been, you know, some ambulance calls reported. It's hard to say what it's like in there exactly, but what salary workers tell me is basically, you know, they're working at something like a third of the speed. And as these long weeks, long hours build up, I'm hearing of people quitting. I'm hearing of people saying, once I get my annual bonus in December, if the strike is still going, I'm out of here. So mm. we'll see how it goes. Yeah, well, I thought you had a good suggestion because salaried workers were saying, hey, look, we don't like doing this. You know, we're kind of being forced into a bad position and we don't want to be demonized here. And you suggested, look, you guys could get together collectively too, take That's a stand right. together so that sure. you can avoid um, being, put in, being put in as a scab, which I think is a, a very good idea. Um, another piece of this that I, I wanted to pick your brain on is John Deere, of course, is an iconic American brand. Um, it's also an, a monopoly. And there's a lot of unhappiness, my understanding is, among a lot of Iowa farmers and John Deere. There have been, you know, uh, provisions put in place where you can't fix your own tractor anymore. You got to go to the John Deere certified tractor. Didn't Biden get rid like of that? that? Didn't he sign right to repair? He did sign right okay. to repair. But so there's been tension between sort of the farming community and John Deere already is, is what I'm getting at. So, you know, typically farmers are extremely conservative. What has support been like from the community uh, across sort of political factions? Oh, I mean, thinking in sort of like red and blue is just totally irrelevant in this strike. Um, so on the farmer side of things, yeah, I mean, like, you know, uh, the farmers seem to be supportive. It's I haven't seen anything super organized from that, but anecdotally, I mean, I would say these farmers are like, I don't want to buy a million dollar harvester machine that was built by people who have never built a million dollar harvester <laughs> machine, you know, Fair. like, yes, I want people who've been working there for 10 to 20 years and know how to, you know, how to look for problems and, and make sure there's quality control. They're also super behind on production. I mean, the, so one one worker told me for labor notes that uh, when they went out on strike, there were over 800 units behind of these massive tractors that sell for like six hundred thousand dollars each. And each of those units is already bought. They don't make back inventory. They only make for, you know, they're customized ordered because it's we're talking about it's like buying a house. You know, you're not going to you don't have this back stock. You you uh, you create these tractors as people buy them. So things are way behind, they're gonna get way more behind, and farmers don't want equipment that they can't rely on for 20 years. Um, so I think that's a big factor. And just on the political question, I mean, I'll just say there's, I've talked to all kinds of people, their Twitter bio says, you know, I love the second amendment, I'm deep red, go Trump, or says Biden-Harris forever, or says I don't really do politics. It's really that, that part of it, you know, part of what's so amazing about the labor movement is that we're focusing on shared interests and shared needs, and we're not focusing on sort of what do you call yourself? How do you think of yourself uh, politically in sort of an abstract way? It's 
do you want to fight and win together? And that's if, if the answer is yes, you're part of the movement. I'm going to go out on a limb, though, and say probably not a lot of globe emojis in the uh, <laughs> yeah. Twitter bios. Very few neoliberals. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about the support or lack thereof from politicians who are directly pertinent to what's going on here. Yeah, that's a that's that's a really good question. I mean, credit where it's due. Yesterday, Tom Vilsack, who is the agriculture secretary and former governor of Iowa, I believe that's right, um, showed up at a picket line, which is great. Um, also, him showing up caused the company to shut down the Des Moines work, the Inkeny, Iowa works for you know three hours early, which is a great way to support the strike. You know, we're talking about slowing production, so that was a bright spot. A darker spot has been, you know, Joe Biden last Friday said uh, these workers have the right to strike for for wages, which nobody needs to hear that. That's yeah, thanks, bro. that's a law from 80 <laughs> years ago. You know, right. it, in fact, it's like no one was questioning the right to strike. We don't want to talk about the right to strike. We want to talk about inequality and fairness in corporate America when you're, you know, working for a Fortune 100 company. So, you know, I've been saying loudly, um, it, it is in the president's power, is it, in, it is in the Democratic Party's power to set a political norm that you need to vocally support the side of workers when it gets to this level of conflict, when it's this clear. You know, in the labor movement, there is an old saying, which side are you on? There's two sides of a picket line, and you basically have to choose. Um, so I think Joe Biden has been a disappointment in this uh, in this respect. Uh, I was glad to see Secretary Vilsack out there. There's been, you know, some statements of support. Chuck Grassley was not aware of the strike when it began. He oh gave my a God. very funny statement that he was like, huh, that's interesting. I mean, this is 10,000 workers and their families, mostly in Iowa. You know, how many 50,000 people directly affected alone in your state? And he's just like, huh, there's a John Deere strike? He Whatever. Doesn't, he, oh he doesn't know God. where he is. He's like 100 so. <laughs> years old. Yeah, yeah, I know. But still, still, that's ridiculous. What about other politicians from Iowa? It's a good question. I haven't tracked it as closely as I'd like to. I've seen some candidates saying they'll be showing up at you know the rally in Davenport today and standing with the strikers. I have you know off the record been in touch with some people in the on the state level uh, and. What I would like to see is, you know, Deer has hundreds of millions in contracts of state state uh, business. Mm. You know, are we going to talk about that or threaten that? You know, Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, yeah. like, it, vocal support is great. Um, eyes and ears and hearts and minds are good. Uh, but we're also talking about real money flowing through the company right now. And that's that's going to make or break this uh, kind of action. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden on the campaign trail, he promised to be the most pro-union president in history. That's what he pledged. To which FDR said, LOL. Yeah, and <laughs> he even, um, you know, quoted FDR and was talking about how the government d isn't just supposed to allow unions. You're supposed to promote unions, that that is the, the intent is that the government actively promotes unions. He said this the day before Election Day. So and then when it comes down to it. They engage in all this legalistic nonsense. Jen Psaki is like, well, of course, for legal reasons, we can't weigh in on these individual strikes. It's like, wait, why not? What's the problem here? I mean, would it actually be controversial if he affirmatively weighed in on the side of the workers? And then 
my other point is if it was controversial, I feel like that would be a good thing. Call more attention to it. Put more pressure on like sometimes doing something that's controversial and potentially divisive if the dividing line is the right place is an affirmatively good thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, I just first of all, the legal question is I have not heard any credible citation of what the legal issue with, uh, you know, simply speaking out if if not doing anything beyond that. I mean, you know, if he can change the supply chain and say Walmart's working 24 seven, I don't see how he can't intervene in the private sector in a way that supports, you know, workers. It's also a very clear moment. So I totally get it. Union conflicts, workplace conflict can be complicated. You want to make sure the workers are leading the way. Well, they voted down a contract 90%. There's 10,000 people on strike here. The community support is overwhelming. There's really not two sides to this issue. There's one CEO and 10,000 workers and their families. If you can't pick the side in that case, then you're really not prepared to pick the side in any case. It's It doesn't mean anything to be pro-labor if in every instance of a labor dispute, you're not ready to actually do anything. So I'm you know, hopeful that there's still plenty of time for Joe Biden and the administration to step up. You know, Kamala Harris is heading up a worker empowerment panel for the past nine months and or six months. Uh, I would love to see them come out of the boardroom and come into the streets, support people visibly and vocally, you know, talking to these workers. Their lives are on the line. This is, you know, not a joke. It's not a game. And it's not just a political cause. You know, we we're talking politics. I get that. But it's also people's livelihoods, futures. You know, can they afford to stay where they live? Can they survive this strike financially? Um, they're getting cut off their health insurance. There's all these ways in which, like, this is really make or break for people. And it wouldn't take much for a statement. You know, we haven't even seen that from most of the top leaders of the Democratic Party. I just looked up, um, so this impacts, correct me if I'm wrong, this is from More Perfect Union, who you've been, I think, collaborating with, and they've been doing great work as well. Um, this is across Iowa and Illinois and Kansas. And of course, in Illinois, you've got two Democratic senators, Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth. Tammy Duckworth hasn't said a single word about the strike. And Dick Durbin put out, this could have come from a Republican. I'm worried about it. We don't need a strike at a major employer like John Deere. I hope they can work it out oh, in the closing hours. Jesus so that Christ, was, dude. Of course, before the strike actually happened. But pretty uh, pretty weak there, Kyle. Yeah. Um, and when you mentioned Kamala has a worker empowerment panel, I always think it's hilarious when politicians do symbolic things when like very clear, direct action is needed. So here's my worker empowerment panel. Pass the $15 minimum wage and pass the PRO Act. We're done here. There's a, you don't need to sit around you a coffee table and talk do. about it for, <laughs> you know, for three weeks. Um, so I want to, you know, broaden the conversation out a little bit here because you posted something about, I want to say like two weeks or so ago, and it really blew my mind, particularly because definitely at the time there was like next to no coverage over this. It's ticked up a little bit, to be fair, uh, but you were saying... There are 2,000 Buffalo hospital workers on strike, 2,000 Washington carpenter, carpenters, 1,000 Alabama miners, 700 Massachusetts nurses, 450 West Virginia steel workers, 420 Kentucky whiskey workers, 350 Denver janitors, 300 Los Angeles airspace manufacturers. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Then you bring up the potential strikes, the 65,000 film and TV workers, that's the IATSE thing, 37,000 uh, Kaiser healthcare workers. Then you bring up the John Deere. Uh, so my question to you is, why... 
is this happening now? This like colossal resurgence in, you know, labor and workers demanding better benefits, better pay and their rights. It's a great question. I mean, you know, to some extent, I'm like full pundit mode and you're just kind of speculating. But I, I do think like we keep seeing this thing about I've said this before. We keep seeing this thing about these Taco Bell workers or fast food workers or Dollar General workers putting up a sign saying we all quit. The wages are too low. We're going home. That's kind of one response. If you don't have recourse, you know, what are you going to do? You're one Taco Bell worker. How are you going to take on a huge, you know, yum foods or whatever it is to change your situation. The flip side of that is if you're organized, if you have a union and some a contract and uh, uh, some leverage and some really it's about organization, you can do the same thing saying, you know, I'm not going to take it anymore. But you don't just have to find yourself a better side deal and go, you know, drive for Uber, Uber or find another job. You can stay and fight. That's kind of the flip side of the coin that I think we're seeing right now. So part of it, I think, is the pandemic. I think like those T-shirts say, you know, I'll say it again, it was deemed essential in 2020, prove it in 2021. And the third line they have is can't build it from home. Uh, these are workers who have hmm. uh, kept the country running and they know it. And now it's time for their fair share. The fact that it's happening now, I think, is partly the lag of the pandemic. It's also how union contracts work. They're up every few years, you know, and as I talked to one worker yesterday for Labor Notes, he said, we know that if we don't do this now, it's a six year contract. Lock it in now. Last contract, he didn't have any kids. Now he has two young kids. You have to make sure that you're locking in your gains. So when it's time to fight, unions get, you know, put it all on the table um, when they think there's gains to be made. Um, so, you know, I think the pandemic is part of it. I think the really tight labor market is part of it. Workers will say this, you know, they know this. Um, and I also think, you know, the quote unquote K-shaped recovery is part of it. Deer's stock price more than doubled since the beginning of the pandemic. They raised dividends by 17%. CEO got 160% raised. The money is there and workers know it. Wow. You've also pointed out though that, you know, and another way of looking at this is there was obviously for understandable reasons, huge lull in this sort of labor activity in 2020. But this could also be seen as a continuation of um, a, a wave of strike and protests from 2018 and 2019, including, of course, the wave of teacher strikes, which was uh, quite an extraordinary mass movement across the country. I think that's totally right. I mean, I think the the, the sort of medium bigger picture is, is the teachers led the way in 2018 and 2019 for reasons that really, if you trace it back, is from the 2008 financial crisis, how it decimated public schools, and it reached a breaking point in K-12 public sector, you know, before anywhere else. You saw an actual strike wave there. I mean, that's really what a strike wave is. West Virginia, every county, all the teachers go out. Then it spreads to entire different states, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Arizona, North Carolina, South Carolina, Indiana, Colorado. All these states had at least one day action of, we're talking about 100,000 people at a time. Um, so then we saw some sort of like boomerang effect where soon after that, we saw a big strike at Stop and Shop. We saw a big strike at GM. It seemed like the private sector was taking some inspiration from these teachers. The pandemic put everything on hold, just like it stopped the economy. It stopped, people were not empowered for you know a year. It was living in fear. Uh, what's gonna happen? The economy is crashing. Um, now I think that the private sector workers have picked up where those public sector workers 
left off. And the last thing I'll say on sort of the, the what I think the bigger, bigger picture is, is like, look, for the past five or 10 years in the U.S., we have seen something like a challenge to the status quo, a challenge to the establishment politics, a challenge to the establishment social relations in this country, how things are set up, who has the power, all that. That stuff has come into the unions too. The unions, you know, it doesn't end at the workplace. People who, you know, were huge Bernie fans who organized, who've done grassroots political organizing for the past five years, their unions are political vehicles too. Those are, you know, democratic institutions more or less. And People take that energy into their union, into the workplace. And I think it's all part of the same thing. I don't think this happens without the financial crisis or Occupy or Trump or Bernie. I think all of those things are feeding a feeling that the status quo is not working. It's not working at work. It's not working in our unions. And, you know, it has some lag time. It takes a long time to organize this kind of stuff. But I do think we're seeing still more tail effects from from that crisis and the entire social mood that it produced. In the 1940s and, and 50s, you had union membership in this country was about 30% of the workforce, and now it's down to about 10% of the workforce. Um, number one, to what do you attribute that decline? And number two, what has to be done to get us back to that place or, or even better than that? So, you know, there's the, the, the big main thing is the employer offensive from, you know, this was always true about capital and about, you know, corporations. They're always trying to attack workers. But in the 80s, with the help of the state, Ronald Reagan, PATCO, the, the air traffic controllers, there was these huge demonstrations that, that the state was going to take an active role against the workers. And this struck fear into the unions. It broke a bunch of unions. Union membership you know, we talk about the 50s as the highest percentage of workers, but in the in 1980 was the high point of actual number of union members. Despite population mm. growth, economy mm. growth, it's still true that in 1980 there was literally more union members then. And you can follow the charts. It's because these employers got free reign. They were basically instructed by the state. CEOs had, you know, the business roundtable. They were organized and they said, oh, we can just bust the unions. The state's not going to stop us anymore. Ronald Reagan is going to cheer us on. And so is basically Bush and Clinton. And, you know, they're at best, they're not going to do anything about it. Um, and at worst, they're going to join in. Um, the other side, I mean, you know, this is where where kind of my lens on things is, and it's partly because this is what workers have more power to change, is like the unions decided that all they could do is play defense against this stuff. And they started negotiating contracts that were, again, concessionary contracts, which is what we call contracts that give things back. So in 1979, Chrysler faced, uh, you know, the, the big auto company, Chrysler faced a financial crisis. They got a bailout. And with terms, the union said, OK, we'll take a wage cut. And then they did that 1980, 1981. Then they started in a bunch of different industries and in airlines and grocery stores. They started doing these two tier contracts where everyone who's hired new, they'll go lower wages. And you started seeing for decades unions giving things away that used to be normal. You know, I don't know what the figure's at, but people in the private sector used to have pensions, you used to be able to retire and know that you're going to have an income for years worked. That's really rare now and is part of what the John Deere fight is about. Um, but these unions, in response to Reaganism and the corporate offensive, basically said, we're going on the defense, we're going to hunker down and see if we can weather the storm. I think, like I'm saying, you know, about the bigger social phenomenon we're seeing, I think union members are now challenging that logic and saying, 
we played enough defense. You know, it's it's time now to go back on the offensive. We're going to undo concessions. We're not going to accept the status quo anymore. And we're going to look back to the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Specifically, what did they institute? They cut pensions for new hires. We want pensions for new hires. They cut wages for new hires. We want wages for new hires. We're not going to do this anymore. So I think, you know, it's hard to break it out percentage wise, but like a huge chunk of it is employer behavior changed. The state's behavior changed. But another part of it is that unions said the best we can do is cut a deal under bad conditions. We'll just have to learn to live with it. And that kind of union side response to neoliberalism, to Reaganism, is finally starting to crack or waver on on more than just a single union scale across the whole labor movement. Well, there was this sense in both political parties that unions were like a thing of the past. You know, Democrats and the DLC and the Clinton era, they were enamored with this rising white-collar professional class, and they thought, oh, this union stuff, this is this is old news. And they started taking corporate money. Yeah, and yeah. Th- that as well started, and they thought, okay, well, if we side with the corporations, we can get a bunch of cash here, yep, and of course, it. Citizens United opens the floodgates on that front. And yet, politically, it was one of the dumbest things. I mean, obviously, the most important point is what it did to workers' lives and the standard of living in the country. But politically, it was also the dumbest thing they could have possibly done. One of the greatest indicators of whether someone is going to vote Democratic continues to be union membership, even in an era where that has declined somewhat during the Trump era. So they cut the legs out from underneath their own base, which was, again, probably the most foolish political mistake. And you don't have to, you know, look far from that decision to, oh, now Michigan is no longer a blue state. Oh, Wisconsin is no longer a blue state. Oh, Iowa, forget about it. We're never going to win there again. Oh, Ohio, nope, never going to be able to win there again either. These things are not an accident. They cut the legs out from under their own base, and then they were shocked when people ultimately moved away from them here. One of the things, though, that Jonah struck me from what you were just saying is um, on the two-tier contract or with John Deere, the potential three-tier contract, these workers are fighting for not even like their brother and sister that's in the union with them now. They're fighting for people they don't even know who have yet to be hired, which I think is a really extraordinary thing. So talk to me about that, because the two-tier system isn't just a factor at the John Deere strike. It's central to a number of, of the strikes that we see in um, strike authorizations that we've seen playing out across the country. But also, how do these workers see the fight that they're engaged in? Do they see it? We're talking about high level, you know, big social Mm -hmm. trends and a fight for the middle class here. Do they situate themselves within that broader conflict or are they more focused on, you know, the details of their particular contract and what it's going to mean for them and their family? Yeah, I mean, so just to give an overview of like the two tier, the big contracts that are two tier focused that are either strikes right now or going to be. We already talked about Deere you know, two tier going three tier saying we want to do no tiers at all. That's sort of the max maximum demand from the workers. Kaiser, you have 40,000 healthcare workers in a bunch of different unions and totally different trades. They're in different states. They don't all know each other. Um, and they're facing a contract offer from the healthcare giant. I mean, just to say about Kaiser, Kaiser calls itself a nonprofit. They gave back $500 million in CARES Act money last year. They have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. Wow. And they're offering a contract to their workers that, first of all, you're going to get a 1% raise next year. That's it. And all new workers are going to get something like a 26% pay cut on average. They say, we looked at, you know, they, they did a market study and um, wages are too high in healthcare, which is why it's so expensive. So we need to cut down 25%. Oh my God. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's wild. So 40,000 workers are now talking about walking. And, and the third big two-tier contract that's, uh, you know, has a conflict right now is Kellogg. Kellogg, again, uh, they currently have a two-tier system. They have a cap where 30, only 30% of the workforce can be in the lower tier, which makes $12 less an hour. I mean, a huge gap for an hourly worker. Um, they want to say no more cap and no transition to the top tier. Top tier is over. When the top tier people who are in there now retire, everyone's going to be bottom tier. So again, they want to go for the throat around the tier system. Now, the reason people care about the tier system, workers care about the tier system, is yes, it's a moral issue. You know, we're fighting for the future. We're fighting for the kid down the street. We're fighting for our own next generation. You know, John Deere, these are third generation workers. They want their kids to be there. I have people who say they're fourth generation workers and they have grandkids who are looking to work at Deere. Wow. There's entire towns built around this stuff. So that's part of it. It's a moral issue. But it's also, I mean, workers see the strategy here, right? It's divide and conquer both in the union and a race to the bottom economically. So if you suddenly have a union where there's five tiers, I mean, there's unions with seven tiers. How are you going to do anything collectively? Say, we're all united on this. We're all going to take action together. Suddenly you have it. Well, I'm a tier four worker. I don't care about a tier two worker issue. You know, they have it better than me already. Why, why should I risk my risk my skin for for their issue? Right. It creates divisions in the unions, which members see. I mean, they, there's there's a huge Facebook group for the John Deere workers that they created. It's uh, post 97. And it's all about, we were hired after 97, we got a raw deal, and we're not going to create a post-21, a new tier. Uh, the other thing about you know the divisions in the union is it's a race to the bottom for the employer, just like we're seeing at Kellogg's. If they have an option to pay the workers, pay a group of workers $12 an hour less, of course, at some point, they're going to say, man, why are we paying these higher paid workers to do the same thing as the cheaper workers? Let's make them all cheaper. You know, so eventually the end game here is just like they divide workers across borders. They say, oh, we can pay people in Mexico five bucks an hour where we have to pay 20 bucks an hour in the U.S. Let's, you know, divide the workers, pit them against each other and then move it all to Mexico because it's cheaper. It's the same thing for a two tier workforce. If you allow a lower tier into your contract, into your workplace, the boss is incentivized to get rid of the higher tier workers. So it is a moral question. It's an issue of solidarity. It's a beautiful thing to hear people talking about the future, but it's also a question of strategy. And regular rank and file workers understand strategy. They will talk to you about strategy. It's not like you don't need to be like a, you know, a politico to understand how this is going to undermine your position. Top tier workers are fighting for the bottom tier to come up so that they don't have a target on their back anymore. So what you're talking about there, that really is a beautiful thing. And it's great that, you know, you have to look like a couple layers deep to really understand the chess moves here. And it sounds like that's exactly what they're doing, which is really encouraging. But, you know, the flip side of the equation is when you look at what happened in Bessemer, Alabama, Alabama and you have, you know, it, I mean, basically Amazon cheated. Now we know that as a matter of fact, correct? So um, my question is, can anything really change in a serious substantive way without, say, the PRO Act uh, being passed? And just so the audience, to give the audience a little more information on that, I know you know about it, Jonah, but uh, it would, for one thing, override right-to-work laws, which are really right-to-work-for-less. Um, it would allow labor unions to collect dues from all employees in a workplace, regardless of whether or not they're a member of the labor union, particularly because the unions negotiate the contracts and even the non-union members get the benefits of those contracts. So it's sort of like they're getting a, a free ride when they need to be part of the union. 
Um, it would make illegal company-sponsored mandatory meetings used to counteract and discourage attempts at labor organizing. It would classify some workers who are classified now as independent contractors, which is just a scam and a ruse. It would classify them as employees instead, so they get all the various labor protections under law. Do you think things can change in a, in a really positive way without something like the PRO Act being passed? Yeah, I, I, it's a great question. I, I just have to say, these laws are never passed in a vacuum. And the action that happens in, in the streets and at the workplace doesn't happen without Congress. But what happens in Congress doesn't happen without the things in the streets. This is like something I insist on. And not to go too deep, I think, you know, I think labor people talk too much about history. But just to think about the New Deal. You want to talk about FDR, the most pro-union president of all time. Um, before unions were legal, they were made, you know, officially legal and encouraged by the federal government in 1935. That was the big Wagner step Act. forward. The Wagner Act, exactly. The National Labor Relations Act, known as the Wagner Act. Before that, there was this one little provision that was called Section, it was, I think it was called Section 7, Section 7A. And it basically was really vague, but it was in congressional language. They said, workers should have a right to unionize. There's no protections. We don't really know what that means. But Congress passed something saying, before there was any laws about this, saying workers, you know, unions are all right. Unions should be allowed in some sense. Workers took this language and, and took it to their workplace and said, look, Congress says we can unionize. 1934 is the year before the Wagner Act, when this, this sort of little provision that, that inspired people it was like at the root of these general strikes in Minneapolis, in San Francisco, in Toledo, which, you know, of course, didn't weren't done by Congress, but were totally inspired by Congress. So I don't think we can wait around for the PRO Act. Mm -hmm. I also think the more activity we see now, I mean, this is why it's so important that we we force John De the John Deere issue to become an issue for Joe Biden and the political actors right. in this country, because they need to be influenced by what is happening in the real world. And historically, that's how change has happened, is that legislation, this inside-outside combination is what gets things done. I mean, we can't, you're right, we can't organize uh, Amazon, let alone Walmart, which nobody even talks about is the bigger employer, but people have just given up on, without some serious reforms about how unions are legislated in this country. But we also can't change how unions are legislated in this country without some serious reforms in how unions behave and what, what they're willing to do and what union members are willing to do publicly and confront corporate America around this stuff. Or else, you know, whose incentive is it? Do we, do we just think Joe Biden will wake up one day and feel like, man, I, I, I I thought I was supposed to be pro-union. I better get on that. You know, it's going to happen because there was Where some kind of... Yeah. Where am I, Jack? I mean, you know, we could we could put our chips on that, but, like, you know, it's not great. Probably odds. not advisable. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and one side of it, I mean, partly what you're saying is these workers are providing a powerful example to the country of why it's really super helpful to be in a union and why even in spite of the fact... When you decide to unionize, you're taking a giant risk because we all know the way that these corporations will lie, cheat, retaliate with very little, you know, in the way of consequences or accountability. So if you're a worker who's voting to unionize, there's no doubt you're taking a risk. And what these workers are demonstrating, whether it's at John Deere or the healthcare workers or the teachers or anyone else, is that it's worth the risk. There's, you're going to get something out of it. We're able to take collective action and say, we're done with this two-tier or three-tier crap. 
We're done with your pathetic, doesn't even keep up with inflation wage increases. We're done with you cutting or gutting altogether our pension. And we have the power to actually do something about it. So it strikes me that that's an incredibly powerful example, not to mention you know, support for unions is near historic highs right now, and especially among young people. But so much of, of the language and the muscle memory and the understanding of just the mechanics and what this all means has been utterly lost as unions have been decimated. And that's reflected in part in the media coverage, too, I think. It's also scrubbed in our classes. Yeah. You know, oh, they don't well, teach that's, labor history in the way that need, it needs to be taught. That's been explicitly and intentionally done, yeah. you know, for, mm -hmm. for decades. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, one thing I would say about a lesson I hope people are taking from the fact that, you know, Striketober is is happening among unionized workers is that these unions, you cannot compare uh, the kind of leverage you have if you are organized compared to unorganized. You know, people were talking about October 15th general strike, and it was good to see people saying, you know, we want to take action. We want to think about work and the economy as a site of power. That's a core piece of thinking strategically about how we're going to fight corporate America. But at the same time, you know, there's all this, there's buzz on Twitter, and then there's 10,000 workers at John Deere hold a meeting, decide we're going to strike, and suddenly the national news is there and a huge corporation is on the defensive. You know, the fact that you're organized and can get together, make collective decisions that are democratic, that people get a vote, feel bought into, connected to the material reality and has some structure to it and protection from the law because of, you know, gains you've made in the past. That is how that's kind of like the tiny kernel that we're going to have to build out of. It's it's going to have to be at least partly about how organized we are. You know, we can want it as badly as we want. Like you said, there's historic uh, desire for unions. There's something like 75% among Zoomers for, you know, support for mm. unions. And what's membership among Zoomers? 8%, 10%, 4% yeah. in the private sector? You know, so it's not mm -hmm. enough to want it. You have to get organized. And I, I'm hoping that people realize that you know, how did John Deere workers do this? It's because they have a union and because they organized. And and the reason why it's so important to a point you made earlier, Jonah, is that when you look at the economy, the structure of a corporation, and I'm not putting a value judgment on this, it's just an objective descriptor. The structure of, of a corporation is tyrannical. It's dictatorial. You know, yes. you have the owner at the top, then you have the manager underneath, and then you have the employees underneath them. And basically whatever they say goes. And so you can, as one person, stand up and fight back and try to, you know, negotiate tough because they just be like, see ya, gone. But, you know, if you, if, if you collectively organize, then it's a lot harder when 10,000 workers step out because then you actually have a problem on your hands. And unless the structure of the corporations are going to be inherently democratic, which is a whole other conversation because it's a whole other political philosophy and economy, then this is the best answer in the current context. Yeah. Jonah, I also wanted to ask you, um, we've talked about the striketober and we've talked about workers, of course, August, you know, historic number of workers just quit their jobs who, you know, many of whom weren't unionized and didn't have the <laughs> ability to make their current situation better. So they just said, you know, screw this, I'm going somewhere else. What about have we seen an uptick in activity around workers unionizing? Um, I was thinking in particular, I know there's uh, some workers at the Starbucks, some of the Starbucks in Buffalo that are trying to form a union and are being met with uh, extraordinary tactics 
from Starbucks HQ, including they sent top-level executives. Howard Schultz came down. Oh, my God. They've put these, like, manager spies from headquarters <laughs> into the stores. They've hired all these new workers who, of course, haven't been part of the conversation of unionizing. Right. So you've gotten one Starbucks. You've got, like, 15 baristas standing around bumping into each other. So they clearly see this as a major threat that they need to throw everything at to make sure it does not possibly happen. Um, speak to that, but also are we seeing an uptick in worker interest in forming and joining unions uh, currently as well? Uh, yeah, one other, I mean, a couple other funny things from the Starbucks thing is they're they're remodeling two of the 18 stores now, right, which you know, right. of course means mm-hmm. you can't come to work. So, you know, it's a great timing. They also, there was the, <laughs> you know, one worker took a selfie where behind him this, you know, this woman from corporate who is like a a vice president of the company is like has an apron on and is sweeping, you know, as like some sort of display of we're on the same. I mean, kind of like you said, Kyle, it's like um, uh, we're equals here, right? You make you make $50 million or whatever, you know, you make $5 million. I make 15 an hour, uh, but we're equals because you put on an apron for 20 minutes, you know? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, more broadly, it's it's hard to say, like, I have long been uh, a pessimist about where we're at in the labor movement. We are not close to the numbers we need to see. That's just a fact. And I think it's better for everyone if we own it. That said, there are inspiring trends. I mean, even the idea that they would go for an election at an Amazon warehouse is like more ambitious than we've Mm. seen the labor movement be. Another really exciting thing we're seeing is Unite Here is a union that is a really fighting union that is um, organizing HelloFresh, the meal package, you know, uh, service. These are workers who work in factories of hundreds of people. You know, they've filed for two elections at factories in Colorado and California for, you know, something like 1,500 workers total in an industry that's growing rapidly. So, you know, we see toeholds here and there. It's hard for me to say, you know, we're certainly not seeing an explosion in new organizing, partly because our labor laws are broken and partly because, you know, I I think a lot of these unions have this conflict where internally they've had concessionary contracts, conditions have been getting worse for their members. So it's, you know, less and less attractive for non-union workers. This is a huge problem in the UAW. They, uh, there's there's the proliferation of Southern, uh, you know, in the South, transplant corporations. So foreign car builders, like we saw, Volkswagen in Tennessee, we saw Nissan in Mississippi, and they can't win an election there, partly because conditions have gotten so bad for UAW auto workers. You know, on paper, it's totally true that it's still better to be a union auto worker than a non-union auto worker, but not like it used to be. If things were where they should be for auto workers in the union, you would have non-union workers saying, we need to join the union today. Like, you're making 10 bucks more an hour than me. You have pensions, you have all this stuff, I need this. That's what was happening in the 30s when literally, I mean, you read accounts of, of, of boom times of unionization, the unions couldn't keep up. They would get a phone call saying, hey, uh, we all just went out on strike. Could you guys come down here and form a union? Like we're not seeing that level of activity, which I think is important to note, but it's also true that we are on some kind of upswing. I think at Labor Notes, one thing that we believe is that, you know, the unions still hold hope for, for the entire working class. And if we can get these back to the fighting levels they were, the democratic institutions um, that they've been at their best, then we can inspire non-union workers to actually want to join this movement as opposed to, you know, having to be dragged into it, worried about their concessionary contracts and things like that. Uh, you know, people still look to unions for 
hope, but I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of building up our unionized workers, showing what it means to fight and win. And that's really why John Deere is so important. It's like, if they can win this, you know, we've been looking for a reverse PATCO for 40 years, something that can mm. inspire workers and, 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 you know, strike fear into corporations that they can't just do whatever they want. And if this can be that victory, I do think it can have this domino effect in the non-union 90% of the workforce. Yeah, you know, Jonah, to your point, as you were talking there, I was reminded of um, there's this chart that really says it all about unionization. Uh, the share of income that goes to the top 10% just absolutely spikes as soon as union membership declined. I mean, it is, it's perfect the way that Clearly. they correlate. It's unbelievable, yeah. Yeah. So, Jonah, uh, to put a finer point on that, um, do you think that we are living through a turning point in the labor movement? We're not where we were five years ago. It's not the 2010s anymore. It's also not the 1940s. I, I think, you know, if, if I had to guess what's um, what's happening here is that like, as sort of the neoliberal era starts to crack, the same thing is happening in the union movement. And we're kind of, you can imagine that we're, we've been at the bottom. People talk about a declining union movement. We haven't been declining for decades. We've been just sitting at the bottom. Um, and I think that's starting to change. The question is, is this going to be, you know, a small local, uh, you know, a local maximum, or is it going to really actually come out of that trough that we've been in? You know, if you imagine a chart of union strength, are we going to get back to where we were even in 1980? Are we going to get back to where we were in 1955 when union membership was 30 some percent? We're going to get back to 1945 when one in 10 workers went on strike. Are we going to get back to, like Kyle said before, you know, the, the chart started showing that, uh, you know, union membership is declining and the top income earners are going up. That's the question. We're, we're moving in that direction more than we were. Um, but, you know, we have to keep it going. This is, it's a, it's a fragile thing. It's like a, a tender flame that we have to keep going. A tender flame. I like the way you put that. Um, Jonah, tell people where they can find you, where they can support the work you're doing. Uh, first of all, at Labor Notes, just like it sounds, you can check us out at labornotes.org. It's a project been going for 45 years, reporting on the labor movement from the bottom up. You can also, of course, find me on Twitter. I also publish a weekly newsletter that basically uh, catalogs everything a union has done in this country in the past week. Um, and you can find that on my uh, social media site. So Yeah, highly, highly recommend all of those things. I'm a subscriber to the Substack. I'm a subscriber to Labor Notes. I follow you on Twitter. Um, and I know it is an extraordinary amount of work just to keep track of everything that's going on out there, especially because there are so few labor reporters left so right. we're yeah. really like that's true you know out there with a, out a lot of other support so if you guys are able to support jonah make sure you do it he's doing incredible work and jonah thank you so much for the work you're doing and especially for your time today we're super grateful thank you for highlighting the labor movement and for having me on all right so that was jonah Furman. um i think he was wonderful in the movie super bad <laughs> <laughs> i call him jonah goldberg Furman because I'm, I'm an idiot. You've actually messed me up with that because I keep then... You having, almost called him that? Well, I just can't have to keep checking myself on what his actual real name is. You <laughs> got in my just, head with that. Just so everybody understands, off air, 100% <laughs> of the time, I refer to him as Jonah Goldberg, which is why she's now struggling with it, which is why you're I always like... I was like, oh. which one is it? Okay. Yeah. And I've said, we, I've said his name, what, 20 times to you off air? 
at least. Yeah. yeah. So that's Jonah Goldberg. Anyway, Superbad was a great movie. Uh, <laughs> he lost a lot of weight. Seems like a nice guy. Uh, no, Jonah Furman, uh, he's wonderful. And I have to say, I don't know if I can name any other labor reporters. Can you? Yeah, for sure. Um, there, there are a lot of good labor reporters out there. Um, you can go, you know, Indies Times covers this stuff. Max Alvarez covers this stuff. Um, Ed Enweso covers it from like the... Is there anybody at a huge... There's one. Who? Um, um, oh, shoot. Um, Steven. This is my point right here. No, he's New York Times. So they're actually... So I, I do know a decent bit about this. Um... New York Times had a labor reporter. Mm -hmm. He left. That was the last major paper, I think, that still had a labor reporter. But he's back okay. now, Stephen Greenhouse. And um, he does a good job. Fake name. Covering for the Times. But, I mean, your point is correct. They're yeah. few and far between. So think about it. Where do... Kim Kelly's another one I don't want to forget she's, Yeah, she's wonderful. So we've actually... I've interviewed her she's as well, fantastic. along with you. Yeah. You interview her all the time. Uh, so sorry, Kim. My bad for having a colossal yeah. brain fart and forgetting. Um, but where do people spend most of their waking time? Work, right? Uh, and we're all expected to work from, you know, when you're an adult or when you're teen until when you die. And there's one major uh, labor reporter in the country that mm -hmm. we can name, and we follow this stuff for a living. Yeah. Doesn't that say it all right there? Yes. More perfect union. We also talked to Fads oh, about the work they're doing they, there. They do a wonderful job, too. Yeah. And actually, shout out to Jordan Sheridan because he announced he's going. He's there on the ground He's there right on the now. ground now in mm -hmm. Iowa doing, you know, the doing reporting for the John Deere strike. Yeah, so. but, I mean, you see how it's a lot of, um, I mean, most of what we named there was independent outlets. That's right, yeah. Doing the job there. that the big mainstream should be doing. Should be doing. Right. They're, right. they're busy melting down over Trump being mean to Colin Powell after <laughs> passing. <laughs> You know, oh, good sir. That's one of the best things Trump's done. In a How long time. dare you be smirches like that, <laughs> sir? Anyway, anyway, rest in peace. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. By the way, it'll work this time when you clutch your pearls. Uh, you know, not like 2015 and 2016. Right. When you clutched your pearls for a year well, straight and then he won. Well, but so good did, job. Keep it did work up. for them. They got richer. Well, they got good ratings. They got but richer than ever. It also ever. made Trump win. They sold a bunch of books. They don't care. They they got their. They got theirs. And they're so going to do it again. You know them. they're going to do that again, too. Oh, 100%. They're going to freak out over the dumbest shit, and then yet again, he's just going to ride a wave of they can't. a backlash to their elite idiocy. They can't help themselves. They can't help themselves. Even if they wanted yeah. to. But anyway, back to Jonah right, and the Jonah. great work he's mm -hmm. doing. Um, I think he does a really good job of putting it in historic perspective, both in terms of saying, look, it's not like— the 30s and 40s. We're not talking about mm -hmm. that level of activity where something like one in every 10 workers went on on strike. I mean, it was just like an astonishing number of um, of people and also number of labor actions. But it's also a big break from the 80s, from the 90s, from the 2000s, from the 2010s, when everything was going in the wrong direction yeah. and aggressively going in the wrong direction. And unions felt like the best they could hope for was like that their contract is only a little less shitty, not a lot less shitty, or that they didn't, you know, lose the right to unionize altogether as what is what happened in many states effectively with right to work, which, you know, really undercut the union movement altogether. And you didn't have any political allies to speak of. Under the Clinton era Democrats, they were, you know, either they were explicit union busters or they just let it happen, stood by and watched it happen and they were cool with it. So you have a little bit of political support. 
You have um, a, a sea change in terms of public support for unions because there was there was a time also when public support for unions had really waned. And you have workers who feel like because of the tight labor market, they've got um, the ability to do something that now's the time. And so for the first time in my entire life, you have the balance of power shifting just a little bit. And that's pretty dramatic. Well, I think that what people are realizing, especially with the pandemic and with even back with the 2008 crash, is that nobody's coming to save you. So you almost you have to save yourself. And yeah. when I say that, I mean, you know, you can find uh, solace and comfort in those closest to you in the same position at the workplace. That if you guys just band together, then you can make a difference for the positive. But if you're sitting around... And you're waiting for... Well, he said it. He was like, we can't wait for the PRO Act. That shit's never, never going to happen. You can't wait for the government. <laughs> you can't wait for, uh, you know, management at the company, no matter how even friendly you might be with yeah. them. You just can't wait for it. You know, nobody's coming to save you. You got you got to save yourself. And that requires collective action, you know, uh, solidarity with your brothers and sisters, the workplace. It'd be very easy uh, for me to feel extremely nihilistic and pessimistic right now given what's happening with the reconciliation bill that it's just like totally devolved to total trash you know even the most basic things and this is i keep bringing it up but it just really gets me prescription drug reform 80 some percent of americans support it democrats have been promising it for decades republicans have occasionally promised they run on it routinely as like a core part of their proposal and then it comes down to, to it and it doesn't matter how popular it was it doesn't matter how many people organize that's all cinema it. by the way it it's not all cinema it's also menendez and there's a whole bunch of them who are taking money from pharma who behind the scenes are standing in the way of this thing there's a caucus of them in the house as well she wasn't the one who got it axed i thought she was she's an integral part but she is far from the only one but bottom line is, it doesn't matter all of those things. Ultimately, it's not going to come to pass because you've got, you know, a handful of corporate-owned jerks in the House and the Senate. So this movement of workers exercising power and demanding more in solidarity with one another is a truly hopeful development. And it also, and I think this part is also really important, is you know, part of why the media doesn't like to cover the story is they just have a total blind spot where anything working class is concerned. But part of why they don't like to cover the story is because it goes against their narrative that the existential like battle line in the country is Trump supporters versus Biden supporters or like R versus D, where Jonah said, like, those lines are irrelevant to this conversation. The media would have you believe that it's not possible for people who have different political persuasions or come from different backgrounds could band together and work together in this way, in this kind of solidarity. And so it's an uncomfortable story for them for that reason. That That's literally the only place where that's the case, too. I can't name a single other place. Maybe you could say, you know, if you're in a sports league or something with your buddies and some lean right and some lean left, that that sort of just gets left you know, at the curb and doesn't matter. Yeah. You guys could just kind of go through it. But yeah, the NFL is actually an interesting example there because you, you have people across political spectrum in the locker room. Uh, oh, we talked to Justin point. about that. Is it yeah. It's, I wouldn't say it's 50-50, though. It's probably like 70-30, no? I, do, I would not wager a guess. Right. But well, that even, was one of you the know, things we talked about. It's possible about. even the labor movement 70-30, you know, leaning a certain direction. But the fact that the others are accepted because on this particular issue we're fighting for the same thing, I mean, that's a message that I sort of have been preaching for a really long time, which is 
you're allowed to agree when you agree, you know? Yeah. And I've gotten shit for, for example, like being too soft on libertarians, but my response is, I'm only soft on libertarians where I agree with them. Right. If we're talking about foreign policy, for example, or legalizing drugs, for example. Mm -hmm. On stuff where I disagree with them, like they say, we shouldn't have a minimum wage, I'm like, all right, dog, you're a moron. Like, what do you want me to say? So, yes, in, in the labor space in particular, it does seem to be the most prominent area where all that other stuff gets left to the side and the idea is, all right, are we fighting for higher wages? Yeah, we're fighting for higher wages. We're fighting for better benefits? Yeah, all right, we're fighting for better benefits. All right, then we're brothers and sisters and yeah. let's hold hands in solidarity and, and get this and done. And get this done. Yeah. Imagine if they were going through each other's Twitter profiles, like, I don't like the way you said this. Yeah. You're, you're not allowed canceled. in the union. You're not, yeah. You're not allowed in the union. I'm going to deplatform you from the picket line. <laughs> that I mean, never happened. It, right. And, uh, when you put it at that granular level, you see how counterproductive that whole mode of politics ultimately is because it goes against the idea of building a movement, a movement of having solidarity. And so if you believe in class politics, which I do and which you do, um, the union hall is the, effectively the only place in America where we've truly had any form of class politics. And look, Union history is littered with lots of examples of terrible behavior and racism and sexism and all of those things. But it also has throughout history been a leader in terms of inclusion, in terms of diversity, in terms of not just economic justice, but also social and racial justice as well. So that part of the labor movement is what is so incredibly important, because as long as you have working class people divided along oftentimes what are effectively arbitrary lines split evenly between the two parties, then, oh, well, the elites can control both parties and yeah. you're effectively done. And that's where we are. Yeah. And, and by the way, to get back to the point about, you know, they can't even get the lower prescription drug prices in the bill. That's just another area where direct action is the best possible path forward. Like, I would love it if Mansion and Cinema aren't comfortable for a single day the rest of their lives and everywhere they go publicly, they get protested. Everywhere they go. And that's what, why do you think I came out swinging so hard in favor of the people who protested her when they followed her into the bathroom and violated decorum for about 15 seconds? And everybody's like, oh, how dare you? And I, I was like, okay, tell me what's more offensive. A sitting senator being uncomfortable for 15 seconds or the fact that she took $920,000 from Big Pharma and then she killed lower drug prices. So now there's going to be people who die because they're rationing their insulin mm -hmm. or they're rationing their pills, I'm much more outraged at that fact yeah. than I am at the fact that you felt slightly uncomfortable for 15 seconds when nobody touched you, nobody did anything wrong to you, and all they did was tell you, hey, I'm your constituent, I can't even get a meeting with you. Right. I call you, you don't answer. You know, I try to get a meeting, I can't get a meeting. All, maybe if I pay you 5,300 bucks a pop, like at these lobbyist dinners, then you'll talk to me, but I don't have that kind of money. Yeah. So, you know, that... In, Bottom line is, in the same way that you have direct action uh, on the labor movement front, and now people are striking and really getting out there and demanding stuff, I'd love to see that in terms of how we treat our public officials. Uh, there's a great, it was some Michael Moore documentary where he said this, but in the U.S., the people are afraid of the politician, uh, politicians. In France, the politicians are afraid of the people. And it would be nice to get to a place where it worked like that for us, too. Amen. 
Amen to that. Yes. So anyway, guys, uh, this was a really important episode, in my opinion. You know, Agreed. this is one of those episodes where I feel really good about it because it's really substantive and nobody else is covering it in the detail that we're covering it. So, you know, this, it's stuff like this that makes me proud. It almost makes up for all the times that I'm on my show and I'm making fart noises with my mouth and <laughs> doing whatever, you know. Well, so, it's um, good to entertain the people as well so that they show up for all the substance. Crystal ball, pro fart noises. You heard it here. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, guys, if you support the show, uh, go on Substack. $5 a month gets you the video of uh, all the shows and it gets you at a day early on Fridays. And uh, for everybody else, you could sign up on Substack for free and you get the uh, audio version of all the podcasts for free and it comes out uh, one day later on Saturday. So we love you guys. Uh, have a good one and we'll talk to you soon. See you all next week.